Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to LibertyShield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now... On with the show.
good boys and girls two for the podcast today is wednesday it is the 16th of august i'm just have to check the calendar there and i hope you're all doing well hope you're having a nice day the rain is staying away which is nice it makes a nice change from the month of july in which it was only safe to go outside if you were in fact a duck uh today is wednesday which means it is nostalgia day and today we are going to travel back in time and look at Parma in the 1990s. Because why not? Because I've been thinking a lot about Parma and what a fun team they were in the 90s and what a sorry state of affairs it is that they find themselves in Syria B now and the financial turmoil that the club has been through over the last you know 20 years or so um this club in the 2000s was completely unrecognizable from what we'd seen in the late 90s or even the early 90s between 1992 and 2002 they won eight trophies but in 2003 the Parmalat scandal happened. The parent company of Parma, which was Parmalat, collapsed and resulted in eventually the club going into administration in 2007. From there, it was a lot of ups and downs. In 2015, they were declared bankrupt and went out of business. They were refounded as a Serie D team, then secured three straight promotions found themselves back in Syria, but in recent years they have dropped back into Syria B. And as we know, arguably the greatest player in club history, Gigi Buffon, uh, re- announced his retirement recently. So we will travel back to, we might as well go to 1990-91. Nevio Scala is the manager. They finished sixth in the league. They go out of the... Italian Cup in the second round. Some notable players at the club at the time, Claudio Taffarel, obviously World Cup winning goalkeeper with Brazil in 94. Lorenzo Minotti and Luigi Appellini, long-time stalwarts at the club. People who forged their reputation with Parma. Um, Appellini played for the club from 87 to 2000 and then finished his career with Verona, he joined the club from Reggiana. Uh, Minotti joined from um, Cecina. He spent from 87, 87 to 96 at Parma, moved on to Cagliari, then Torino, and finished off with uh, Treviso. Um, others of note at the club at this point, one Thomas Brolin, who was one of my favourite players to watch in the early 90s, uh, part of the first great Parma team, one of the, probably the first big signing that they made. Um, he would obviously go on to Leeds, had a horrendous time at Leeds, and his career kind of petered out at the age of 26 once he left Parma. Um, Alessandro Melli was there this stage as well. He was a a fairly reliable goal scorer for them in these early days. 
We'll move on to 91-92. Again, they finish sixth, but they finally have some success. They win the Coppa Italia, uh, beating Juventus on aggregate in the final. They lost the first leg 1-0, won the second leg 2-0 at home. Uh, things had changed in terms of players, uh, notable players to arrive. Antonio Benarivo, who was another one of these great Parma stalwarts, joined the club in 91, retired with the club in 2004. Uh, others in the team, I mean, Daniele, Daniele Zarotto was a good player, uh, didn't, didn't really make his mark outside of Parma. We played for Brescia for a long time. Again, this is the building block, though. This is the beginning of what they would become. They also had their first campaign in Europe, went out at the first hurdle, losing to CSKA Sofia. They'd actually done brilliantly in the league up until the beginning of March. They'd only lost three games. They had a bunch of draws, but they were looking like a team that could challenge for a European spot via the league. In the end, they fell off, but went into Europe anyway as a result of winning the Cup Winners' Cup. Uh, Sorry, winning the Coppa Italia. In the Cup Winners' Cup the following year then, uh, 92-93, they got to the quarterfinals. They knocked out Uspest, Boa Vista, Sparta Prague before losing to Atletico... No, sorry, I'm wrong. They beat Atletico Madrid and would go on and win the Cup Winners' Cup in this third year, in uh, 92-93. In that final, then, we start to see a bit more of, of what they would become. Festino Espria is one of the players who's come into the club and he's on the bench for the final, but had played... A pretty big role for them that season. Um, you've also got Sergio Berti has arrived at this stage. Uh, Georges Grun is still there. Tafarel has lost his starting spot, which is interesting when you consider he would go on and win the World Cup a year later. Um, but winning the Cup Winners' Cup was a huge achievement for the club. Uh, they beat Royal Antwerp 3-1. Minotti, Melli and Quoji with the goals. Uh, Marco Ferrari, also on the bench. He was around Serie A for a long time, um, largely as a as a squad player, but he had a, a pretty extensive career. Um, who else is of note? Marco Ozio, maybe, I suppose. You could look at him. He played in Serie A for a good while with, with Torino, Empoli, Parma. Went to Brazil and played with Palmieri's for a year, which was quite unusual at the time for an Italian player to do. Uh, We move on then to 93-94 and the arrival of Gianfranco Zola and Roberto Sensini, two players that would become pivotal in the growth of Parma as a football club. Uh, That season, they finished fifth in Serie A. They got to the Coppa Italia semifinals and they lost the final of the Cup Winners' Cup, beaten by Arsenal 1-0 in that final, uh, the last bit of European silverware that Arsenal have won. Maybe, am I right in thinking, the only European silverware 
that Arsenal have won? Well, they did win the Fairs Cup back in 1970, but nobody cares about that. Um, yeah, they knocked out uh, Degerfors, Maccabee Haifa, Ajax, an Ajax team that was on the brink of becoming something really special. And then Benfica in the semi-final. Uh, Luca Bucci has come in. He's another well-known Ajax, or what well, Ajax, well-known Parma figure. Uh, he would be usurped, obviously, by the great Gigi Buffon later in the decade and, and would go on and have success himself at Torino. Uh, ben Arrivo, Minotti, and Apollini are in that defence, along with Sensini. You've got Brolin, Zola, and Aspria as the attack. Massimo Crepa is also in that team. Uh, but we're starting to see Parma take shape, and they're starting to spend more money. The following year, the 94-95 season, they finished third in the league. Uh, signings include Dino Baggio, Fernando Couto, Marco Branca, who was, I think his last job in football was as the sporting director of Inter. Um, Roberto Musi, long-time Serie A defender, and Stefano Fiore was also in the team that year. Now, he was good for them, but probably best known for his time at Udinese and Lazio, I would say, but a very, very good midfielder. Uh, Roberto Muzzi, and just another one of these really reliable Italian defenders that were around. Now, at this point, he was 31. He'd been at Parma. He'd been at Milan. He was a squad player at Milan when they won the title and then the first of their back-to-back European Cups under Arrigo Sacchi. He was sort of a utility defender who could play all across the back line. Went to Torino, had good success there, and then landed with Parma again. And uh, when he was at Parma, he sort of established himself in the Italian national squad as well. Uh, Like I said, they would finish third in Serie A. Level on points with Lazio, three points ahead of an incredibly good Milan team, but 10 points behind Juve, who would win the league. They would get to the Coppa Italia final. They would lose to that Juve team. And in the UEFA Cup then, they would knock out Vietas Arnhem on aggregate. They would knock out AIK, Athletic Bilbao, Odense, Bayer Leverkusen. And then they would take on Juve in the UEFA Cup final, a Juve team which has just won the domestic double, they would beat them 1-0 at home. Uh, lineup of Bucci, Apollini, Kuto, uh, Minotti, Benarivo, Desharia, Gabriel Pin, Dino Baggio, Roberto Sensini, uh, Gianfranco Zola, and Tino Aspria. Beat them 1-0 in the first leg at home and then drew 1-1 away. And Juve were pretty much at full strength in that away, in that second game. They'd rested a couple. Um, for example, uh, Peruzzi didn't play in the first game and Chiro Ferrara didn't play in the first game. Now, it may have been that they were suspended. I doubt Peruzzi was suspended, but it could have been injured or whatever. Um, but they weren't at full strength in the first game. They were stronger in the second game, though missing Deschamps, who'd gotten himself suspended. 
they also had Parma also had to make some changes. Um, Bucci, Kuto, Minotti, Susic, Benarivo, and Deshari as wingbacks. Fiore came into midfield. Baggio and Crippa were in midfield with him, and then Aspria and Zola up front. Baggio scored the goal in the away leg, and he'd scored the goal in the home leg. He was without question the hero of the day as they claimed their second European trophy in three years. And the third European final in three years, which is a pretty impressive feat when you consider that back then you would have had Juve, both Milan's, both Rome clubs, all with much bigger uh, budgets than, than Parma, all much more attractive to players than Parma. But Parma were really smart and went and kind of sought value. They weren't at this point overpaying for talent. They were finding players that were either overlooked by clubs, no longer wanted by clubs, or, you know, they were taking gambles on players like Aspria, who had flown under the radar. Because back then, with transfers, you might get a 50-50 hit rate. You, 50% of your transfers were almost certain to flop. At least 50%, sometimes more. But for Parma, they had a really good hit rate through the through the 90s. We move into 95-96. They finish sixth in uh, Syria. They, they're in the Cup Winners' Cup this year, not the UEFA Cup. And they, because they finished as runners-up of the Copa Italia. So rather than trying to retain the UEFA Cup, they're in the Cup Winners' Cup, which is weird. Because the Copenhagen's Cup kind of always would have been looked at as the third cup. The UEFA Cup was always seen as a little bit more important. Um, joining the club that year, though, a very young Pipo Inzaghi, a very young Fabio Cannavaro, and the legendary Risto Stoichkov, who joined from Barcelona. Now, he didn't settle all that well there. Uh, they did sell Brolin and Aspria in this season. Brolin to Leeds, Aspria to Newcastle, and obviously neither of them worked outside of the the environment that Nevio Scala had created at um, at Parma. Uh, we'll move on to ninety six, ninety seven. They finished second in the league. This is their best performance in the league. They've made some more. Really, really good signings that I'll come to. Um, they finished two points behind Juve in the title race. And they really did push Juve all the way. The problem is they'd fallen a, a long way behind early in the season. They lost three of their first seven games. And they went eight games without a win, including three losses between the 20th of October and the 15th of December. So... They'd actually fallen quite a way down. I think I'm right in saying they were 14th at the end of that run in mid-December. And then they just went in a charge to the second half of the season. And unfortunately, they came up short. But this is where we really start to see things take shape. So Stoichkov leaves, Enzaghi is sold on, Kuto leaves, Brolin is gone, Minotti leaves, Obviously, Espria, like I mentioned, is gone as well. Desharia leaves. In comes a young Lillian Turam. A young Enrico Chiesa. 
Mario Stanich, Zimmeria, Daniel Bravo, and Hernan Crespo, who's one of my favorite forwards of all time. And Crespo and Chiesa immediately hit it off. Zola has an injury-plagued season and would soon depart for Chelsea. But Crespo and Chiesa as a front two just worked immediately. Turam and Cannavaro as a centre-back two worked immediately. And most notably of all, we get the arrival in the team of Gigi Buffon, who plays 27 games this season. And only concedes 17 goals in those 27 games. We move into 97-98. They finish sixth in the league. They have a bit of a fall off there. If we look at the league table, they finish... Three points off fourth. Sorry, two points off fourth. So not exactly way down or not exactly way off the pace, but enough off the pace to be annoyed. Um, They re-signed Stefano Fiore, who they'd let go after his first season. He'd gone to Padova and Chievo and comes back. They signed uh, young Jesper Blomqvist, who was talented. Adilton, who would go on and have a really good career, just not with them. Uh, he was brilliant with Hellas Verona and really good with both Genoa and Bologna, but it didn't really work from at Parma. Um, who else did they sign? That's pretty much it for them this season. Um, they get to the semi-final of the Coppa Italia They have their first season in the Champions League. Unfortunately for them, there's only one team per group progressing in the Champions League. And they are in the same group as reigning champions, Borussia Dortmund, and end up finishing second. We move on. 98-99. Maybe the best season they had. They finished fourth in the league. They win the Coppa Italia. They beat Fiorentina on away goals, 3-3 on aggregate. They win on away goals. Um, Crespo scores in the first game. Badastuta scores for Fiorentina. That's the game at uh, Il Tardini. And then in the away leg, they draw 2-2 again. Crespo and Vinoli score the goals. Repka and Kois with the goals for uh, Fiorentina. The Juve team, or sorry, Juve team, Jesus wept. The Parma team, Buffon, Turam, Sinisi, Cannavaro, Vinoli, Fuser, Baggio, Juan Sebastian Veron, Mario Stanich, Hernan Crespo, and Enrico Chiesa. On the bench, they've got Benarivo, Apollini, Musi, Stefano Fiore and Abel Balbo. That's a hell of a team. Now, that's some of the best players of that entire decade and the decade after, all at Parma. The Fiorentina team is elite as well. You've got Francesco Toldo, you've got Torricelli, Repka, Falcone, and Padalino as the defense, uh, and Jorg Heinrich, I should add. Um, you've got Rui Costa, 
Sandro Kois and Amoruso in midfield and Edmundo and Gabriel Badastuta up front. That is an unbelievably good team as well. Rui Costa, Badastuta, Taldo, they're all among the best players of this era. Um, in the second leg, Alan Bogossian comes in for, for Parma. The rest is the same. The Fiorentina team is, I want to say, exactly the same. Yeah, they played exactly the same. The exactly the same team. But that's a hell of a final between two tremendous teams that are not among the elite. Now, the problem is for both of these clubs, they would eventually go to the wall and go bankrupt and, and have to fold. Napoli, obviously, the same thing happened to them and, and they would have to start over again because they spent outside their means trying to keep up with the two Milan clubs, the two Rome clubs and Juve. And obviously the two Rome clubs also went very, very close to bankruptcy as well, trying to keep up with the big three. But that's a hell of a final with a lot of great, great players. In the UEFA Cup, they knock out Fenerbahce, they knock out Wisla Krakow, they knock out Rangers, they hammer Bordeaux, they knock out Atletico Madrid, and then in the final of the UEFA Cup, they take on Marseille. And at this point, the UEFA Cup has gone to a one-game final rather than the two-legged affair we'd seen beforehand. Um, That Marseille team wasn't quite a vintage Marseille, but still had Laurent Blanc, who was just off winning a World Cup. Um, still had had a, a young Robert Perez who would, would join Arsenal. Uh, coming off the bench, Titi Camera, formerly of Liverpool. Uh, Arthur Moses, who was a decent player. But this, this Parma team is just brilliant. Buffon, Turam, Cannavaro, Sensini. That's a back three. Diego Fuzier and Vaniolo as wingbacks. Baggio, Bogassian and Veron as a midfield three. And then Hernan Crespo and Chiesa up front. And back on the bench for this one, the returned uh, Festino Espria. So you've got Espria and Abel Balbo both on the bench. And Abel Balbo was one of my favourite players at this point. Came over to Europe with Udinese having come through the academy at Newell's Old Boys and then spent a season with River Plate, would have great success with Roma, was only at Parma for this one year and would move on to Fiorentina, then go back to Rome and then go and retire with Boca Juniors. But he was never a big-time goal scorer, but he was a great second striker. He was really powerful. Even though he wasn't the biggest, he was really good in the air. His best goal-scoring seasons came with Udinese. Uh, he'd won great goal-scoring season with Roma, but he was just, he was the type of guy who'd run himself into the ground for the good of your team. See if we can find any list of what full transfer moves they made. Oh yeah, here we go. Veron, Bogassian, Vanoli, uh, Aspria joined mid-season, and Diego Fuzer, who was a really, really good player. Blomquist went to United, Crippa, uh, Zimaria, and Adilton all left. We're going to talk more about individual players when we get to get to the end, but the last season we'll we'll look at then. Well, actually, we might as well just go to O two. Um, in ninety nine two thousand, Chiesa leaves 
Varane leaves, Sensini leaves, Apollini leaves, Fiore leaves again, Aspria leaves again, Balbo leaves, Nestor Sensini is gone. I think I mentioned that. Uh, Roberto Musi retires. They do sign Marcio Amoruso, who's a player I love, and Ariel Ortega, and Marco Devaio, who would score a lot of goals in Serie A for a bunch of different clubs. Uh, Usman Dabo, they signed Paolo Sosa. He was sort of waning towards the end of uh, of his powers. Paolo Cannavaro, the younger brother of Fabio, was signed that year as well. Uh, Amoruso was one of my favourite strikers. I remember years and years ago, World Soccer Magazine used to do sections on, you know, things going on around the world of football. And I always remember they did a, a small feature on Marcio Amoruso. And I'd always kept an eye on his name. Then he went to Udinese and he was really good there. Parma get him. He wasn't great at Parma. He was good, but not great. He had some injury issues. But then Dortmund paid a huge fee and brought him over there. He won the title and then his knee gave out on him almost completely. And from there, he just sort of bounced around. He only ended up with 19 caps for Brazil. But he was a really, really good player. Just an explosive goal scorer. Ariel Ortega is one of my all-time favourite players. Uh, A genius, but also an absolute psychopath. Um, Came through at River Plate. That's where, where he made his name. Came to Europe and began a bit of a nomadic existence. Um... Valencia for a year, Sampdoria for a year, Parma for a year, back to River Plate for two years, back to Europe with Fenerbahce for a year, then went back to South America to play for Newell's Old Boys, then went to River Plate. And even though he stayed there for six years, he had three loans. Um, 188 caps should easily have won one over 100. Just a fantastic player. A genuinely fantastic player to watch. Marco Devaio had come through the academy at Lazio, hadn't made the grade, had gone to Verona, it didn't work from there. Went to Bari, it didn't work from there. Went to Salernitana and did really well. Went to Parma and was great. Then played for Juve, Valencia, Monaco, Genoa. Had a really good run at Bologna and then finished off with Montreal. Uh, Montreal Impact. And just had himself a really good career in the end, scoring goals pretty much everywhere he went. Um, Paolo Sosa was he was pushing 30 at this point, but he'd had some injuries. The 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 inter move hadn't worked from at all. He'd been great for Benfica, Sporting, Juve, and Dortmund. Didn't settle to life in Germany, but was really good for for Dortmund, won the Champions League with them, came back to Inter, and it just it never really worked. And he was never the same after that and ended up retiring. He retired at 32, which is really early. But um, a player I did like. Um, We'll move on to 2000, 2001. And at this point, we have seen some pretty big departures. Um, Buffon is gone. Cannavaro is gone. Turam is gone. Savo Milosevic arrives as the big money signing. Uh, 
people will remember him from when he was at Villa, where he flopped. He went to Real Saragossa, was really good there, but didn't didn't work um, all that well for Parma from memory. Let me just have a look. Yeah, nine goals in 31 games and had three loans in the four seasons he stayed there, so it didn't work at all. Uh, Roberto Sensini came back. Sabri Lamoche came in. Sergio Conceição and Matthias Almeida arrived in a part exchange deal for Hernan Crespo. Uh, Ariel Ortega also left. Mario Stanic went to Chelsea. Dino Baggio also went to Lazio. This is when Lazio started to really spend a lot of money. Sorry, I'm wrong. Cannavaro and Turam are still there. It's the following season that they leave, isn't it? It is. It's the following season they leave. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So this season, um, I, I've, I've completely skipped that Neville Scala left. Uh, Neville Scala left after the 95-96 season. He was replaced by Carlo Ancelotti in in 96-97. Carlo stayed there for two years, was replaced by Alberto Malassani. He was the manager when they had the great season and won the UEFA Cup and the Copa Italia. In 1999-2000, he was still manager. In 2001, he was sacked. He was replaced by Arrigo Sacchi. Sacchi didn't really want to be there. And he left after only a few weeks. Uh, they finished fourth, runners-up in the Coppa Italia, fourth round of the UEFA Cup. Not a particularly inspiring season for them at all. Too much turmoil, too much upheaval, too many really good players leaving. And while the players coming in weren't bad, they just weren't of the same quality. But this then, in the summer of 2001, is where it all starts to fall apart. Buffon leaves, Turam leaves, Conceição leaves, um, Amoruso leaves, Fuser leaves, and they bring in Sebastian Fry, who was talented but not of the same level as Buffon. Obviously, nobody has been, but you get what I mean. Martin Jetu, decent player. Uh, Hidetoshi Nakata, who is probably the biggest ego of any player in the history of the game. Hakan Suker arrives, but... Great striker, but never never really performed outside of Turkey. Um, Matteo Ferrari arrives. He was a solid centre-back. And Tafarel returns to the club. But they finish 10th. They do win the Copa Italia, which is sort of the, the last hurrah for this club. Um, they beat Juve on aggregate in the final. Lose the first leg 2-1. Win the second leg 1-0. Uh, but, I mean, the team that they're putting out, Tafarel's back, he's the goalkeeper. Luigi Sartor, Sensini, Benarivo, Emotiani, Almeida, Lamouche, Jr. Johan Miku was a good player, actually. To be fair, he was a really good player. Nakata and um, DeVille's playing up front in his own. It's not a bad team by any stretch, but it's not, it's not a patch of what they've had. And then the ship really does hit the fan. They finish fifth the following year. Cesare Prandelli has taken over as manager. But this would be the last season in which they were in any way free of trouble, let's just say. Um, again, though, great players coming in the door. Cannavaro leaves, DeVaio leaves. 
Adriano and Mutu both arrive. Now, Mutu should have been a great player, but obviously had his issues. Adriano should have been a great player, but likewise had his issues. Uh, Adriano spent two years there and was very, very impressive. Mutu spent just the one year there and then went to Chelsea and then everything fell apart for him. But everything fell apart for Parma at this point as well. Parmalat went bust late in the year and the whole club needed to be restructured. And they went very clearly into panic mode and began to sell players left and right. And if you look at the team in 0405, there's there's a couple of really good players there. Um, Alberto Gilardino is there, but it's not a patch on what we've had in previous years. So I wanted to focus in on a couple of players um, in particular because there's just certain players that when I think of Parma, I think of them. And when I think of them, I think of Parma. So the first one is Buffon. Now, most people remember Buffon for Juve, obviously. But I remember watching him as a young keeper. When he'd just come into the team, he was 17, 18 years of age. He was big. He was incredibly athletic. He had these phenomenal reflexes that you didn't generally get with a goalkeeper his size. He wore flashy kits. He just epitomized Italian cool. He's a good-looking guy. The hair. Unusual goalkeeper kits. Like, he would wear their away kit. If they were playing at home, he would wear their away kit as his goalkeeping kit. That kind of thing. Um, he obviously popularized wearing pink as a goalkeeper as well. Um, for me, he's the greatest goalkeeper of all time. And I love that his career goes Parma, Juve, PSG, Juve, Parma. It's the perfect way for his career to have ended. Um, I love that he had the lack of ego to go to PSG knowing he probably wouldn't be an automatic first choice, go back to Juve knowing he'd be a squad player and then drop down a division with Parma because that's where he wanted to finish his career with the club that had given him a start, with the club he joined at 13 and stayed with for 10 years and then gone to Juve. And there's nobody who supported Parma or Juve that could ever suggest they didn't get the money's worth from that guy. He is the record appearance holder in Serie A with 657 ahead of Paolo Maldini. The rest of the top five is interesting. It's Totti, it's Zanetti, and it is Paluca. So all players that would have competed against each other for many, many years. Uh, Juan Sebastian Veron is next. And again, he only had the one year there. But I remember when he came across to Sampdoria, I remember thinking he was just, he was a different type of midfielder. There was just something about the way he went about his game and how easy he made things look. And like I say, he only had the one year at Parma and then went on to Lazio. When he joined Parma, there was a bit of a scandal because he was on the verge of signing a new contract with Samp after two years there. And all of a sudden, he was away to Parma. And Sampdoria, spray, Sampdoria fans spray-painted on his house 
Veron, you're a traitor, go home. And uh, he said he went to Parma. Um, he obviously would then go on to Lazio after the year and was brilliant for them, won the title. The team the following year was even better. And then he obviously went to United and Chelsea. The United, he was better for United, and, and I will maintain this forever. He was better for United than people remember. He was a disaster at Chelsea. Um, he had a pretty good loan at Inter. Then he had a great loan at Estudiantes, went back to Estudiantes and played there pretty much until he was ready to retire. Had a had a season with Branson, um, lower league team that he was just happy to to go and help out um, and then came back to Estudiantes and played a year at the top flight again. I think he's now the president. He's the chairman of Estudiantes now. Juan Sebastian Veron is one of my favourite players of all time and nothing will ever change my mind on the fact that he's one of the best midfield players I've ever seen. Uh, Fabio Cannavaro, again, a player most people will remember for his time at Juve. But for me, the best Cannavaro was the Parma Cannavaro. Worth remembering, he was 29 when he left there. And he actually only spent a couple of years with Juve, two years. Because when he left Parma, while Turam and Buffon had gone to Juve, a year later, he went to went to Inter and just wasn't happy there. Went to Juve, was incredibly good with Juve, but was into his 30s then. Had that phenomenal World Cup, joined Real. At that point, he's 33, reigning European Football of the Year, though. So the feeling is he's, he's still in his prime. Has three years at Juve, isn't, or at Real, isn't, isn't great for them, but he's certainly still a good defender. And then he goes to Juve and then finishes off with Al-Ali. Um, but I will always remember, I think his best years were at Parma. I think he was just phenomenal there. I think that that era with Buffon, him and Turam, and Turam is where we'll go next. That defensive triangle was just sensational. Um, and likewise with, with Turam, like he again is 29 when he goes to Juve. I think his best years were also at, at Parma. So I think they got the primes of two of the best defenders we'll ever see, which is incredible to think when you consider they're at best, they were the sixth richest club in the league and probably the seventh biggest because you'd put Napoli as a bigger club. Like what them and Fiorentina did, and we'll probably do Fiorentina next week or the week after, what they did for years was they punched above their weight and they did so in a manner that other, the, the top clubs didn't expect. They didn't win Serie A, but they shouldn't have won Serie A. We're talking about an era where you had the big five of Italian football all spending incredible amounts of money. And yet both Parma and Fiorentina were able to pick up a decent amount of silverware along the way. Uh, Turam the perfect defender. Six foot, quick, strong, brilliant 1v1, comfortable on the ball. Of course, the highlight of his career is his performance at the 1998 World Cup, uh, where he scores both goals in the semi-final against Croatia. Now, he had been at fault for the Croatian goal, but he did drag them back in, and then he was he was impeccable in the final. 
absolutely impeccable. He was voted third best player at the World Cup. His performance in that final is something that should be shown to kids on an unstoppable loop. How to just lock down a fullback position. He was incredible on the day. Um, Who else? Hernan Crespo. Like I said, one of my favourite strikers. Uh, Currently a manager in Qatar. Has actually had a decent enough managerial career to date, though the job with San Paolo didn't go well. But he joined Parma from River Plate and spent four years there and plundered goals. Then he went to Lazio, was great for them. Went to Inter, went to Chelsea. It didn't go great. But he had a good loan back with Milan, a good loan back with Inter, then joined Inter permanently. Genoa, and to his immense credit, late in his career, 35 years of age, he joined a very broke Parma and played for them for buttons and still did pretty well. But when he was at Parma the first time, I'm not sure there were many better strikers in the world. And it was a world record fee when he left. Parma had made big, big money on him. And they made big money on a lot of players. But unfortunately... They were so heavily leveraged with the Parmalat thing that it just didn't matter. Um, his strike partner, obviously, Enrico Chiesa. Another one, lightning quick, lightning quick. Scored goals for fun. He'd been a journeyman until he got to Parma. Started off with Sampdoria, didn't make the grade, went to Taramo, Chiesa. Sampdoria, again, didn't make the grade. Went to Medina, went to Cremonese. Sampdoria, again, like, between 1990 and 1996, he doesn't spend more than a year at any club. Then he joins Parma, and he's there three years, and he's brilliant. Moves on to Fiorentina, would go to Lazio, Siena, and um, Figlini, who I don't know. Um but just scored goals everywhere he went and scored goals, you know, well into his 30s. But again, like with many of these others, I think his best years were at Parma. I think those three years at Parma, he was really special. Now, he scored more goals, I think, for Fiorentina because he had one incredible season where he got 27. Uh, yeah, 22 in the league, but 27 in all competitions. He scored 45 goals in 85 games there. He got 55 in 125 at Parma. 16 and 31, 21 in 48, 18 and 46. And that pairing with him and Crespo, to me, is one of the best pairings I've ever seen because they just worked so well together. Crespo at Parma, 12 and 28, 14 and 35, 28 in 45, and 26 in 43. Just consider that that team had Buffon, Cannavaro, Turam, Veron, Crespo, and Chiesa. That is what you call a spine. If they had just been able to work a bit more, you know, maybe upgrade the fullbacks, who were both good players, but were sort of past their best, and give him a little, give Veron a little bit more help in midfield. And they had good midfielders with him, Dino Baggio, Diego Fuser, etc. But one more player. One more midfielder and maybe upgrade one of the fullbacks. And I think they could have won the league one of those seasons. Um, Gianfranco Zola is the last one then to touch on. I mean, he 
he made his name at Napoli, but he he already kind of become a, a decent entity at that point. Joined Napoli in eighty nine at the age of twenty three. Spent four years there. Um, was kind of the understudy to Maradona originally, and then became you know not his equal, obviously, but someone that Maradona heavily relied on. Spent three years at Parma. Was tremendous for them. And then went to Chelsea and he was, he was 30 when he joined Chelsea. And I think there was a feeling that, you know, Chelsea were overpaying for a guy who was, you know, according to what was viewed then as the, you know, the standard practice, he was past his best. But you look at what he did with Chelsea season after season, all the way up until he was 36, 37. His last season, he scores 14 in the league. He's 36 years of age. He he was just a phenomenally good player. And with Parma, um, 22 in 51, 28 in 51, 12 in 36, but he had a couple of injuries that year. And then he leaves early in the 96, 97 season. He scores two in 11, goes to Chelsea, scores 12 in 30. Never got the recognition he deserved at international level because unfortunately for him, he was around at the same time as Roberto Baggio. But, you know, he goes to Chelsea, he wins two FA Cups, a League Cup and a Cup Winners' Cup. He's absolutely vital to the early success that they had in the 90s, which obviously predates Roman. This is the first time Chelsea have become anything resembling a, an important team in a long, long time. Now, they did it by spending themselves to the brink of oblivion, of course, because that's what Chelsea do. But Zola was a was a great player. Um, the last two people to touch on then are Carlo, who was a, a successful manager for them. Uh, but Nevio Scala, who began all of this. And Nevio Scala is hugely underrated historically as a manager. He did... Pretty well at Regina in his season there. Had an incredible run with Parma. I've never fully understood the reasons why he left. That's something I've, I've never really been able to wrap my head around. Whether he thought that it had become stale, he was no longer getting through to the players, I don't know. But... He took some time off. He went to Perugia. Didn't work out. Then he took over at Dortmund, replacing Otmar Hitzfeld. It was the impossible job. Hitzfeld had won back-to-back titles. And then he'd won the European Cup. And it just, it didn't make sense for him to take that job at that time. Was only there a year, was out of football for a couple of years, went to Besiktas, went to Shakhtar Donetsk, went to Spartak Moscow. I've never understood why he didn't get more Serie A opportunities after the Dortmund thing, because there's no question he was a really, really good manager. Uh, He won the Coppa Italia, the Cup Winners' Cup and the UEFA Cup, as well as the European Super Cup with Parma. He won the what we now call the World Club Cup with Dortmund. He won the Ukrainian double with Shakhtar and then left after a year. He seemed he didn't like living in Ukraine. Um, but I don't understand why he didn't get more chances in Syria. 
whether it was his personality, he was known to be a bit spiky, but he was a very, very good coach, very good tactician. Um, in July of 2015, he was confirmed as the new chairman of a refounded Parma after the club folded due to their financial issues. While former player Luigi Appellini was chosen as the head coach, Parma managed to return to the professional Italian leagues that season and clinched promotion from Serie A to the Liga Pro, which is basically Serie C, in April of 2016. Uh, Scala resigned from his chairmanship in 2016 in disagreement with the club's owner's decision to sack head coach Appellini and technical director Lorenzo Minotti, both former players during his days. So his loyalty never diminished to his to his guys. Um, I think he's one of the underrated great Italian coaches. I think what he did at Parma is is something that's worthy of remembering. That club were irrelevant, irrelevant really before he went there. The only reason anyone outside of Italy had really heard of Parma prior to Nevio Scala is because that's the club where Rigo Sacchi had spent two years prior to joining AC Milan. And they were a lower league team when Sacchi was there. Scala's the one that built what they became. Then obviously, later seasons, um, a bunch of different managers rolled through the place. None of them repeat his success, even though there's no question the team at the end of the 90s with Buffon, Cannavaro, Turam, Crespo, Varane and Chiesa is the best team that they had, no doubt. None of them had as much success or as much staying power as him. Um, Alberto Malasani, he did very, very well there, but he was a journeyman manager. Chievo, Fiorentina, Parma for three years, Verona, Modena, Panacanaitos, Udinese, Empoli, Siena, Bologna, Genoa, Genoa again, Palermo, Sassuolo. Rarely lasted even a full year anywhere else. Chievo, Parma, two years at Verona. That's it. Everywhere else, it's one year or less. And he did well. Like He did really well in his time with Parma. That one season, that 98-99 season, they were tremendous. That's it. Other than that, no one else had any real success outside of Nevio Scala. And it's a shame that he's so often overlooked. Like you look at their history, they win, they've won three Coppa Italias, one Super Cup Italia. They've won a bunch of Serie B's and Serie C's, uh, sorry, Serie C's and, and, and D's. They won the UEFA Cup twice, the Cup Winners' Cup and the European Super Cup. And all of it comes in this era that we've just talked about. It all comes in this run. The majority majority of it comes between 91 and 99. That later Cup, that 2002 Cup, is kind of a bit of a fluke because they were already declining at that point. You're looking at basically an eight-year run two Italian Cups, two UEFA Cups, a Cup Winners' Cup and a European Super Cup. And outside of that, Parma have never really been relevant. But 
people still talk about them now and people still look out for the results and people still hope that they get re-promoted and there's still there's a, a an aura about them, an inkling that people have that this is a club we should we should remember because they were so special in the 90s. And their stadium, the Ennio Tardini, or Tardini, is a little bit tumble down, a little bit ramshackle. It looks a little bit temporary. There's scaffolding. The seats aren't comfortable. There's no backs on a lot of the seats. But it has a charm to it. Like a lot of the old stadiums in England had a charm to them. They've in in Italy they, they haven't moved on from these stadiums, and we will do Fiorentina next week actually because they're worth talking about for many of the same reasons as Parma. Not as successful, not as many great players, but some incredible players, some really good managers, a tremendous stadium. That back in the day we were watching these games on Channel Four, and the color, the vibrancy, the noise. Small stadiums like these aren't huge stadiums. This stadium holds. 20, 28,000. That's it. It's not, it's not a 50, 60,000 seater monolith. It's a small old school stadium. Parma doing what they did is the equivalent of Barnsley doing the same thing. It's the equivalent of Barnsley winning three European trophies, some domestic trophies in, a, in an eight year span. It, it's just unthinkable what this club did. It really is. And that's it. They are in Serie B now. Uh, Last season, they finished fourth and just missed out on promotion. Uh, Let's see now. Yeah, the top two went up. They got into the semifinals of the playoffs. And were beaten by Cagliari, who would then go on to get promoted. Um, yeah, it's a shame. It is a shame because I'd love to see them back up, but it is, it's purely a nostalgic thing. Now, the city of Parma, if you ever get a chance, it's, it's a gorgeous place to go. It really is a gorgeous place to go. And uh, ham and cheese, it's, it's, the, it's the capital of ham and cheese. It just is. Um, but yeah, it, it is a, it's a wonderful place to go. It's a great club. But it's a club that has that one period in their history that is truly, truly special. And the rest is, is kind of... The rest is kind of myth. It's a lot of lower league regional football. If I'm right, they'd never been a Serie A team until this this spell. Yeah, first time they came up was in the 1990-91 season under Nevio Scala. Saki had brought them into Serie B, but couldn't get them beyond that. Almost did, but couldn't. Scala brought them up. Scala built the club. He left. They had some success after he left. And then it all fell apart. And they've had a rough time. Like they went down in 08. They came back up. 
they struggled, they were mid-table, they got relegated again because they went into administration, they went bust, they had to reform. They've been back in Syria, they had a three-year run between 2018 and 2021, but it's been back-to-back years now in the lower league. And unfortunately for them, it doesn't look like they're going to get out of that anytime soon, but I'm hopeful that they will. I'm hopeful that they will. Um, but you look at just the players we went through you, from from the Zola, Brolin, Aspria, Apollini, people like this, Tafarel, all the way through to those incredible players they had in the late 90s. This this was just a club to really treasure at the time, and this is a period to really remember. So we'll leave it there. We'll come back, news and gossip, and then we're done. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So uh, the Women's World Cup final is set. It will be Spain versus England. I think this is a final that a lot of people would have predicted uh, at the start of the tournament. Um, Spain beat Sweden 2-1. Salma Ayingano scored in the 81st minutes. Rebecca Blomquist equalised on 89. Sweden thought they'd done enough to force extra time. But Olga Carmona, Carmona, Olga Carmona, she scored in the 89th minute to give Spain the win and send them through. And then just an hour ago, a couple of hours ago, um, England beat Australia 3-1. Ella Toon put England one up. Sam Kerr scored undeniably the goal of the tournament. An absolute screamer to equalise for the Aussies. Lauren Hemp and Alicia Russo scored to wrap things up for England. England were the better team. England were the better team. It's undeniable that they were the better team and they deserve to go through to the final. And of course, in that final, they will get Lauren James back. So it'll be really interesting to see if she comes straight back into the team, having missed the last two games. Do we have attendances confirmed? We do. So the Spain-Sweden game... Played at Eden Park, which holds about 50,000. Got 43,217, which is pretty good. Pretty good, it must be said. And then Stadium Australia, with a capacity of about 85,000, got 75,000, nearly nearly 76,000 for the Australia-England game. That's a Tremendous turnout. It really is. The third and fourth place playoff will be at Lang Park in Brisbane uh, on the 19th. And then the final will be at Stadium Australia on the 20th. And I am guessing it will be a big, big crowd as well. The English are there in their hordes. There's obviously a lot of English that live over there as well. And there will just be a lot of people that want to go to the World Cup final. Um should be a good one. Should be a good one. Big, big chance for the Lionesses to bring home the World Cup and basically embarrass the men's team who just continue to fall over their own feet. Uh, transfer news. Chelsea have agreed a deal to sell Hakim Ziyech to Galatasaray. Uh, they signed him in 2020 for $34 million, and it looks like they'll get about $5 million back on that. Um... Neymar has completed his deal to Al-Halal 
in Saudi Arabia, 78 million pounds they've paid for him on a two-year contract where he'll be paid 150 million euro per year. 150 million per year. This lad forfeited his footballing career when he joined PSG for the money. And he has just shown that he doesn't care about anything else. Uh, Rumours that there's all manner of stuff in this contract where he gets a bonus for every tweet or Instagram post promoting Saudi Arabia. Just utter insanity. Um, Also from Saudi, Al-Nazir have made an offer to Manchester City for America Laporte. Laporte is 29, obviously out of favourite City last season. They've signed Josco Guardiol, so there's definitely um, there's definitely a logjam in a position that he would play. So it makes sense now that he would be one to, to move on. But I, I don't like the idea of him going there at this point in his career when he could still play at the highest level. Um, but that may well be what takes place. Uh, if we have a look then at who they've signed so far, they signed Seiko, they signed Cristiano, obviously. Uh, they've got Seiko Fafana, Sadio Mane, David Ospina, Taliska was there beforehand, and they signed Marcelo Brozovic as well. Um, Al Halil, they have signed Koulibaly. Neves, Neymar, Milinkovic-Savage, and Malcolm, who people will remember from when he was at Bordeaux and then Barca, he went to Zenit St. Petersburg for a number of years. He's now a he's now actually a Russian citizen, uh, and I think he was considering playing for the Russian national team, but he's since been called up for um, for Brazil. I think he's played for them a couple of times this year. But, um, yeah, interesting, interesting things. Who else is there that's among the bigs? It's Al Itahad, the the next one. Let's have a look at them. Their signings this summer, they signed Kante, they signed Fabinho, they signed Jota from Celtic. Um, they had Romarinho. I assume they will sign at least one or two more before all of this kicks off. And then the last one is Al-Ali. And they've done big business as well. They obviously signed Roberto Firmino on a free. They brought in Riyad Mahrez. They brought in Alan St. Maximum. They signed Frank Kessie. They signed Eduard Mendy. They signed Roger Ibanez. They had uh, Riyad Budabu's there before and uh, Alioski who was at Leeds for a long time um, so certainly shaping up that this league could be not good it won't be good because there's still too many players that are basically plumbers and school teachers but it's certainly starting to look interesting and of course the uh, the fifth team that people are taking note of are Al Etifak managed by Steven Gerrard. Um, they signed Jack Hendry, the Scottish centre-back. 
Uh, Moussa Dembele, formerly of Fulham, Celtic and Lyon, and a, a loan spell at Atletico Madrid. And they signed Henderson, uh, who's wearing number 10. Um, there's a clip going round of that they played Al Nazir the other day. Uh, Al Nazir rested most of their best players. Only Mane played of note. And uh, the Mane goal, Henderson is atrocious about four times in it. He miscontrols the ball because he has the technical ability of, of a, a curb, um, despite wearing number 10. Then shits himself in a tackle, then doesn't track a runner, then doesn't make any kind of attempt to play the to, to challenge for the ball, and is completely unaware of, of what's behind him. So basically, your your typical uh, Jordan Henderson type of thing. I've also missed out uh, on one. Mary Demerel is set to join Al Ali um, from Atlanta. I I don't understand what he's thinking because he's 25 and in his prime and should really be staying in Europe. There's there's no real reason for him to bounce at this point. He can make the money. But I will say, Mary Demerell and Roger Ibanez is a really good centre-back partnership. They're a really good centre-back partnership. So they've got a good goalkeeper, the front three should be good with Mares, Firmino, and St. Maximum. The midfield will be a, a little bit ropey with just Frank Kessie of real quality. But that back three, or well, goalkeeper and two centre backs and front three, I think that's going to be pretty good. I do. I think that'll be pretty good. Um, we'll do the gossip then. <clears throat> Brazilian international Alison Becker has no plans to leave Liverpool and is happy being manager Jurgen Klopp's number one goalkeeper. Uh, That's from Anfield Watch, who you wouldn't normally count as a source. However, it is written by Sam Maguire, and I have seen how he sourced it, and he is 100% accurate, and there can be no question. So, yeah, fair play to Sam on that one. Uh, Al Nazir is were said to be keen uh, on signing Alisson, but yeah, it's all... All nonsense. Um, Egyptian forward Mo Salah has reportedly given the green light to the Saudi Arabian Pro League to negotiate with Liverpool over possible transfer. I could see him maybe going next summer. He won't go this summer. Fulham have received an offer for £47 million for, uh, for, from Al-Halim. Now, they were only offering 30 to begin with. 47 might make Fulham change their mind. Um, he's apparently very keen. Liverpool are considering as many as six defensive midfielders, including Joe Polino of Fulham and Czech de Cure of Crystal Palace. My hope is it's Czech de Cure. Genuinely. He's the one I want. He's the one I've wanted for a while. I think he'd be a great signing. West Ham's deal to sign Harry Maguire has collapsed. That's a good thing for West Ham. Uh, the collapse has reduced the chances of United signing Benjamin Mendy. That's Actually, a good thing for United as well. Uh, Bayern are interested in signing Stefan Ortega. I mean, they need a short-term fix. He's a decent keeper. Uh, Manchester United could be on the brink of making an offer for Sophie and Amrabat. I think that's a deal that will happen. Everton have not received an offer for Amadou Onana, and only a large transfer fee will prize him away. I don't think United have the money to do that this summer. 
Manchester City are set to submit a fresh bid for Lucas Paqueta. I do expect that to happen now, given we've had the news that Kevin De Bruyne is set to miss the first half of the season, having gotten injured in the opening game. City have failed in a bid to sign Lamine Yamal from Barcelona with the intention of then placing him with Girona because he couldn't actually leave Spain to join City. He would have to stay in Spain. So that's a clever move. But I would imagine it's also a move that goes against what the actual rules are. But yeah, you might as well try. Al Nazir are pushing to sign Clement Langley. He should go to Saudi Arabia. Um, Barca need to get Clement Langley and Serginho Dest off the wage bill in order to sign Joe Polinia. No, Joe Polinia. Uh, Joe Casale. Um, Chelsea believe, sorry, Crystal Palace believe Chelsea have crossed the line in their con- conduct during their attempts to sign Michael Lise. They have broken so many rules this summer it it's actually i think if i actually mentioned even half of what i've heard and again not all of it's going to be true but i think quite a lot of it is uh, i i think i'd probably end up getting sued even though it's almost certainly all true um lazio have opened discussions with hugo Lloris over a possible move to syria yeah good move for him Brighton are interested in Boca Juniors left-back Valentin Barco with the 19-year-old Argentine set, said to have a release clause of about $8 million. Very, very talented. Man City are scheduled to receive 20% of the profit that Southampton make on the sale of Romeo Lavia. So the profit, assuming the deal is $58 million, which is what I saw earlier, uh, so that's about $9 million to City. Uh, Sevilla have made Bubakar Samare, Bubakari Samare, their latest transfer target. He's a good player. He stagnated badly under Rodgers, but he is a good player. And, uh, Dutch goalkeeper Tim Krul is set to have a medical with Luton after an agreement was struck with Norwich City. He's been at Norwich actually a long, long time. Don't. Tim Krul, when did he join Norwich? He must be there seven years, is he? Five years. I completely missed him having a year, a year and a half with Brighton. He was at Newcastle from 05, joined their academy, to 2017, had loans at Falkirk, Carlisle, then established himself, then fell out of favour went to Ajax on loan, went to AZ Alkmaar on loan. I completely missed him going to Brighton. Um, He spent 18 months at Brighton, six on loan and 12 on a permanent contract, then joined Norwich. And uh, it was a two-year contract originally, and he's been there five years. So fair play. He's had a decent run there. He's obviously no longer the first choice by the looks of things. It seems to have lost his place last year, didn't pay enough attention. But um, yeah, I think that's not a bad signing if he's going to be your backup. I, I would say... Tim Krul is a better backup goalkeeper to have than Alex McCarthy, who they tried to sign from Southampton. So, yeah, fair play. Right, that's it, folks. That's all I have for today. Thanks, as always. I'll see you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.